0: dynamic voices for a diverse church.
1: This is Pass the Mic.
0: Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Please follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the founder of The Witness. He has an extensive bio. Of course, he is the man, the myth, the legend, the two-time best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check verified himself. You can read his writings at jamartisby.substack.com. Dr. Jamar Tisby, what's going on, brother?
2: brother? I am geeking out, fanboying out. Historic! This is a massive, massive occasion for us.
0: We made it, dog. We made it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, we don't unmake it in the conversation. But it's I'm rare that to we
0: it. get the opportunity to actually have guests with us live. With us live, we're normally watching from a screen. We're normally on Zoom. We're normally on StreamYard. So we have a guest live that is. I don't want to overstate this, and I don't believe that I can, but he is a scholar, a professor, a writer of many books, most notably what I think was the most influential early book that really planted seeds and helped us to sprout the seed planted um, of Pastor Mike and of The Witness, and that book is Divided by Faith. Our guest today is none other than Dr. Michael Emerson. Dr. Emerson, thank you so much for joining us here on Pastor Mike.
1: Okay. So, you're talking about being geeked out. I, I'm geeked out because I'm just a, <laughs> a huge fan of past the Mic and here I'm
2: sitting with the legends themselves. So, oh. thank you. Oh, that's very Listen, kind. That's, that's very kind.
0: kind. Yes. Okay.
2: So, I've got to start here because we know you as an author and a scholar, but I want to say what a good human being you are. So, listeners, I give you just a tip of the iceberg of stuff that I go through with racists in the church. Mm. Tyler, you know some of this story, even some recent stuff, right? Um, One of the unexpected blessings is that I got a chance to get acquainted with Dr. Emerson through a mutual friend. And it wasn't just about scholarship or the topic of race in the church it was truly pastoral so mm-hmm. we've had some phone conversations that i tell you have brought me back from the brink have have really i mean literal just these you know these conversations where you call somebody and you're you're about to throw the phone yes but they speak wisdom into your life patience remind you of jesus and dr emerson i just want to publicly say thank you for that wow. it has been i mean Your mind is brilliant, obviously, but your heart is huge and loving, and the way you're so generous with your time, with your experience, with your wisdom, um, I am convinced, absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God brought me uh, in your presence in this season of life for a reason, and I just want to thank you.
0: That's incredible. Well, yeah, it's
1: an honor. I'll tell you what, the the abuse you have taken is... (laughs) It's, uh, astounding to me. I mean, I shouldn't be, right? But it says you're doing something right when, when mm. you become the lightning rod for these yeah. issues. So mm. I, I just. Anything to try to get you to, to the
2: next day? Cause I can't imagine Thank what you take. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you're about to experience it just by coming on this podcast. <laughs> you are going
0: <gonna, laughs> <No, I'm laughs> to. Sure. I think Dr. is probably used to it. He's about already now. <laughs> used to it. The
2: lightning strikes get a little bit closer whenever we get on the mic, but here we go. Um, so let's first of all, give us your, your, your current title. Cause I don't want us to forget that you started a new position and I want you to let folks know. Yeah, new position at Rice University, Baker Institute for Public Policy.
1: So, I have a weird title, uh, Siobhan Fellow in Religion
2: and Public Policy is my title. It sounds distinguished. It
0: does. (laughs) Siobhan Fellow.
2: Yes. Um, Well, congratulations. Uh, You're not new to Houston or Rice. It's sort of a return and I don't know if you're loving the triple digit heat, but here we are. (laughs) Yeah, we should know when we're recording this, it's what, maybe the 50th day in a row of over 100? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, our producer Bo didn't mention that when he
0: (laughs) suggested we come here.
2: But uh, let's begin with the book, Divided by Faith. Um, Absolutely seminal. It's a sociological study, but it had an impact far, far beyond it. I'm just curious, and I hear this question all the time like with actors who have blockbuster movies or whatever. When you were co-authoring it with Christian Smith, did y'all have any sense, and it's through Oxford University Press and Academic Press. Did you have any sense that this would have a bigger impact than most academic books? No, quite the opposite.
1: Because I can remember sitting in uh at that time I lived in Minneapolis and I had this little tiny office that had uh was leaking and all that. And I just was like, why am I doing this? It's nobody's mm-hmm. gonna read this thing. Wow. So that's that's how I felt. Wow.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that's so fascinating because right after 2012 and right after that two year period from 2012 to 2014, it was without a doubt the most recommended book. Yes. To mm. me in our circles because there was this clear divide of okay, every black church we know is preaching uh, on Sunday in hoodies in honor of Trayvon right, Martin. Right. Every black pastor I know is saying something about Mike Brown. And what is happening in white churches is completely different. And all these questions of why is this, this, why is there this, this divide down divide? <laughs> and everyone's having these conversations. And I think it was you, and it was also Phil and BJ Thompson. They just kept telling me, divided by faith, divided by faith, divided by faith, divided by faith. And for us, it was such, it was basically saying what we couldn't articulate yes. at mm. the time. Yes. Yeah. In much in the same way that became the motif of passing the mic, saying what people necessarily couldn't articulate they felt or it. felt it, but right. they couldn't put it into words. As you were crafting this research, were there in the research surprises that you had, or was it more a, a compiling of what you already knew and a systematizing of what you already understood?
1: Well, that's a great question. I would say it's sort of both. So, as I was doing the research I was feeling that divide and I had no idea what was going on at first like just being shocked at the different worlds um, so as I'm sitting down looking at all the data and trying to figure out what is going on it's sort of unfolding mm. uh, and, you know and, and the ultimate is what's in the book and it looks
2: all logical but it took a lot of work to get to yes. this yeah which is one of the brilliant pieces of the book is that it feels very understandable and digestible. And also, thank you for making a book of readable length. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is yes. – I think it's a, less than 200 pages. Absolutely. Like you can read it on a long plane ride or, or a car ride. Um, and I'm wondering – I want to talk – we'll come back to the actual content of the book. But real quick, this is more on the cultural impact were there life cycles or waves of popularity of the book? So, when mm-hmm. it first came out, which was 2000, 2001? 2000. 2000 yeah. goodness gracious. Mm-hmm. So, when it first came out, did it hit like lightning or was it a slow burn or did something else happen a few years later that piqued the attention? How did that look throughout the 23 mm-hmm. years it's been out now? Yeah. So, if you ask the publisher,
1: Oxford, they often say it's the kind of book they hope for and that it We'll always sell several thousand copies, you know, each year, but it does peak, right? You know, 2020, just like with your yes. book, yeah. yes. people are looking for something. Um, What I think really helped, you know, I, I, it was my first book. I hadn't written anything. So it was your first book. Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So the, for whatever reason, I had no idea what was happening. Christianity Today, the a magazine at the time, still a magazine, but more people read magazines back then. Yes. <laughs> They decided to do it as a cover story and they had brought uh, different pastors and leaders together to discuss it. And I subscribed to it and it just showed up like, what? And that was very odd because I don't remember them ever contacting me and telling me they were doing this. So.
2: <laughs> just wow, you, like just you got was. the magazine
0: it's one like, day. You get it, it's a cover story.
2: Yeah. Hey, okay. <laughs> that's a good mail day.
0: I think <laughs> one of the most helpful portions of – the book, I'll never forget where I was when I read it. I was in a coffee shop. Uh, when white America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And it was like that moment where I sat, sat, I sat back. I was like, oh, that's it.
2: Yeah, the aphorism. You know, the, we're like, talking that was about. The yes. aphorism,
0: I was like, oh, that's it. Like, yes. Like, and when that was placed in there, after all of the research and some of the arguments that you were making, it punched me in the gut. And I said, Hmm. that's exactly. And then some of the other things, racialization, which I hadn't heard Christians talk about. Yeah, we're going to get into that. And and all these things, when you talk about the transmission of, of encouraging paradigms or paradigms that shape, do you feel like those paradigms are still applicable in the same way as when you wrote it? Mm. Or have they evolved or shifted or, and we're going to get into specifics, but have they evolved, have they shifted, have they changed?
1: Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I want to say, I can't take credit for that. I'm quoting Martin Luther King, I believe. Of course. Yeah. 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 Um, when I give talks on this book now, I say, I, I sort of, I lament that I'm giving talks on this book. It shouldn't be yeah. pertinent anymore. Yeah. And sadly, I think we're in a much more intense era than we were when I first wrote it. Uh, so, those paradigms, I think, are intensified hmm. rather than having gone away in any way. And I wish we could even say they've shifted some and maybe a little bit, but
2: not a whole lot. Yeah. yeah. It, I, I think that's why the book is still selling. The mm. I mean, I, Tyler and I were just talking before we press record and I'm like, every time I go back to this book, no matter how many months – it's usually months, it's not years <laughs> – how many months it's been, I find something new that's mm-hmm. relevant and and something articulated in a way that makes something click. So one of those things that I've used often, and it was a light bulb moment for me, was when you were describing, uh, this is in the introduction, you're describing sort of phases of racism, we talk about slavery, you talk about Jim Crow, then you talk about what we're living in now, a racialized society. And what you wrote in there was, a racialized society is a society wherein race matters profoundly for differences in life experiences, life opportunities, and social relationships. I was wondering if you could expound on that, especially in relation to what our typical ideas of what racism look like are. Yeah.
1: So... uh, a problem is that people, especially white folk, want to have an argument about am I racist or not, and they mean me individually, and then that means do I think badly of each of you in some way, or do I somehow harm your lives directly? Mm-hmm. And and I'll usually tell myself, no, I, I like you both, and I think highly of you. and So we're trying to get away from that because that's not what drives our issues in this country. It's not this individual... Yeah. Uh, attitudes and such. It's racialization, meaning our lives are completely different. I'm going to give you an example here in just a second, but, you know, and it gets woven into policies and laws and all of this. And we can talk about how uh, typically white and white Christians in particular don't want to think in those terms, but we'll, we could talk about why they wouldn't want to talk. Oh, yes. Yes. But <laughs> I'm working on another book right now, which will And it's co-authored with two African-American men who grew up on the south side of Chicago. Uh, And so we're all born in Chicago. I was born in Chicago, too. And so we're just individually writing about different eras of our lives. And then they send them to me. And then I collate them to make chapters. And this is when I first see how dramatically different our lives are. So my example, and this is racialization in a way, but it's at the individual level, but still – One of these authors, when he's in college, because his family is um, under threat of foreclosure because both of his parents have been laid off repeatedly from factory work that they were doing, he's trying to help the family not lose the house, even though they eventually did. So, he quits the baseball team. He's a tremendous baseball player, and he gets a job at UPS, and his shift is from 10 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. So, he's doing school, and then he rushes home gets something to eat, tries to get a little bit of sleep and then takes a bus that gets him within one mile of where he has to work at the UPS, 15 minutes ahead of time. Now he's an athlete. So he says, no problem. I just jog the mile and I'm there seven to eight minutes early. Okay. But he says, I'm late three to four minutes every single night. Hmm. And my supervisor is furious with me before I even begin my work. And so, then he says why he's late. Every single night, he says, I'm a black man running at nighttime. I get stopped by the cops. I get shoved Uh against the wall. I'm told to spread. And I have to give the same story every single night. I'm just trying to get to work. If you would let me show you, he wants to pull out and show (laughs) that Mm. he works for that. But of course, they go crazy. Like You get your hands away from there. And so, he says, the process is takes about the same every night before they're finally convinced. I am really just trying to go to work. And then, he says, I can't sprint, which is what I want to do at this point, because they're still there. So, I just have to walk until they are no longer in sight. And then I sprint, and I end up three to four minutes late. Wow. Wow. I could jog and run and sprint all I want as a white person. I am not going to get pulled over. That's because racialization gives us just – uh, it's just like in a code put into our brains that says what that action, the same action means, and it means something different based on race. That's racialization. It's built into our society.
0: And, and as you shared that poignant illustration you said before, we can talk about why you know white folks and white Christians don't want to hear that or don't want to respond to that. So we've talked about this book warmly in the, in the response of 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 people of color and marginalized people groups but why don't white christians want to hear that mm-hmm. and can you speak to specifically how that response and their evo- avoidance has evolved because it's it's different than shutting the conversation down now it's Evolved into something we see in public society and in the church and white evangelicalism, much more insidious mm-hmm. than what it has been, much more uh, overt than what it has been in previous years.
1: Yeah, that's a great observation. I'll, I'll get into that. So let's start by, you know, in the book it says that there's these three main what we call cultural tools. So you know, the if you go to kit.
2: yeah, yes. the tool, kit. tool you
1: go kit. to work, you've got a toolbox, you can basically you can only work with the tools you have, and. Any, Carpenter will say the key to being great at carpentry is having the right tools. Well, uh, our different religious, uh, faiths and cultures give us different tools. So within white evangelicalism, we argue there are three main ones. So the key one is individualism. And that is the idea, right? It starts with how I understand my faith. I individually make a decision for Christ. So that's an individual relationship. So then I, I, what we call transpose it to understand all decisions that way. I make a decision, you make a decision, and it's up to you to make the right ones. So we call it free will individualism. You ha- and then we add another word: accountable free will <laughs> individualism. So you have the God gives you the ability to choose, and I I I then make this assumption: you can choose anything, and then you're accountable for your choices. Mm-hmm. So if you decide to smoke, dumb choice, you'll pay a price, right? So that is fundamental. Well, then the second thing is: well, how does change happen in society and it's what they say we say is relationalism it's one heart at a time oh if there's one phrase evangelicals love more than anything else and you can see it on them in books and in magazines and on podcasts, right we're doing this for one heart at a time yes which by the way i often add the devil doesn't buy devil never wastes time doing one heart at a time mm. changing the whole societies at a time right preaching <laughs> no so it's a losing battle if you're going to look at it that way but that becomes fundamental. Now, now we get to your question <laughs> because the antithesis and then this third cultural tool is what we call anti-structuralism. Yes. So if it's just individuals and their individual relationships that matter then when we start talking about anything beyond that, and anything when we mention policies, practices, whole cultural Melu's, all these things, those when we were interviewing people, they kept saying things like their facades, their excuses, their f- counter, uh, they are fake, are they don't exist. They're used by people to try to not have to be accountable and make good choices. So that's why when you try to say, hey, there are like literally policies and laws put into place that make the world unfair, make our society unfair, don't want to hear it.
0: And, and what's so funny before you, you ask this question, Jamar, is – Nothing has changed. Right. Like the way in which they've done it has changed. So now you have an avatar and someone like Donald Trump, or you have, Mm -hmm. you know, far-right ideas or alt-right concepts. And now you have anti-marches against those who march for, you know, against injustice. But in terms of the fundamental tools, it's just as applicable today as it was when it was published.
2: Yeah. and So if you don't, if you're listening to this, you don't have the book. Go ahead, pause the – we'll be here. Go ahead and buy the book or the audiobook or whatever it is. I promise you, you will find something that is explaining the situation today as well as in the past. Here's a a, a quick quote that sort of articulates um, what you were just saying from the book. For most white evangelicals, sin is limited to individuals. Thus, if race problems, poor relationships result from sin – then race problems must largely be individually based. And this is one of the core principles that I think makes the book so valuable is I think the most frequent misunderstanding I run across when I'm talking particularly to white Christians, but many others, is they – Understand racism primarily as an individual interpersonal phenomenon rather than an institutional or structural one, so if we can even and and, and it's both and right yeah. there there certainly are attitudinal issues but if you if you focus on the attitudinal issues to the exclusion of institutions, policies, and systems, then we're not getting anywhere. One of the things that I also wanted you to talk about. This is what really gripped me in one of my later readings of the book. Chapter two, From Separate Pews to Separate Churches Evangelical Racial Thought and Practice, 1700 to 1964. I laugh. at have be- <laughs> a history chapter. <laughs> I, and I laugh
1: because uh, Color of Compromise, right, is an entire book. What I was trying to do in a couple
2: of pages was exactly. ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so this absolutely gripped me because you trace. From the early days prior to the formation of the republic up to the civil rights movement. And you're showing how evangelicals missed it again and again, again, and again, and again and again and again and again. And I loved it. And one of the reasons I loved it, you talk about black evangelicals. One of the very few, who ever even mentions black evangelicals. You talk about Skinner, Pennell, John Perkins, mm-hmm. Samuel Hines, mm-hmm. E.V. Hill, James Earl Massey. Hmm which was like, whoa. So, tell me uh, why you thought in a book about sociology, a chapter on history was of necessity. Well,
1: I mean, you're the historian, so you know. I mean, <laughs> there's no way you can understand what's going on now without knowing what the precursors, what led up to it. Everything builds upon everything else, right? I am I am who I am because of my parents and because of the society I grew up in, but why were my parents like they were? Because of the society they grew up in in the yes. era, so – yeah, I mean that's why it just to try to even make sense of what I was hoping to do I had to start with the history. Mhm.
0: Did you find that people when we talk about the history were uniquely were they more offended by your current insights or your historical revelations?
1: That's a great question. I think much more by the current because it's threatening to them. It's a lot easier to say, yeah, in the past, uh, people made mistakes.
0: And it's so interesting because I think what we experienced in when the book started to be – we started to share the book, what we experienced was so much of the historical backlash. Mm. And now it's so funny because now it's absolutely undeniable. You can't get away from the history. There's too many books. There's too many, you know, books like Color of Compromise that have come out that have revealed this. But it's it's fascinating how at for us in some ways, I feel like people were in our circles at the time, mm. and I think this is a unique um, expression of how dependent that circle was. On historical theology and the the founding fathers of the the faith. The way
2: they venerated Dabney and Thornwell and even acceptable folks like Billy Graham on race, right? So so when you cast any sort of criticism or question on their stances, it was like their hair was on fire. But I also want to say I wonder how you, Dr. Emerson, respond to what I would characterize as this really anti intellectualism. So so the fact that you're a social scientist with a PhD writing books what it seems to me like a lot of the resistance is well you can't trust these liberal you know educated you know leftist folks right it's not even an analysis of your actual work it's just you in a category so have you experienced that That's a great and place. why is how is that related yeah. to some of the stuff you're talking about in the book yeah
1: Totally. Uh, just by being a sociologist, yeah. right, you're automatically, can you really be a Christian, things like that, right? And so you wonder why. Well, sociologists think beyond the individual and that, as we just talked about, is, is not how the faith is understood. Um, so I have a new book, which is like, it's coming out in, um, I guess it come out beginning of April, with Oxford, too. And it's a follow up to Divide by Face. So, you know, yes, quarter yes. of a century later. Cannot wait. And we had done a big study. <laughs> yeah. So, one of the things that we're trying to ask is those cultural tools. Why are those the cultural tools that matter? And so, to answer your question, one of the things that we identify and uh, discuss a fair bit is that what we call the epistemology of ignorance, mm. big term. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and certificate programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available.
0: Visit pts.edu admit.
2: Pass the mic. We appreciate you.
1: It's so good. epistemology is it. right, is a how we come to know. So when we say epistemology of ignorance, how we come to n- not know is what we're saying. Mm. And this is a key within evangelicalism. It's like my co-author Glenn Brace, who's a professor at Villanova, I remember him asking me, he's like, How is it that white folk Uh, can live in this country where race has been from day one a central factor and they're just kind of like saying, I'm just now learning about it. Like when they come to college, like, how come Mm. nobody ever told me about this? And, And it goes on generation after generation. It's because it is an actual achievement that is one of the ways that you continue the dominance, that you continue life as it is, is you just don't know about it. And you have to work it, not
2: knowing about it. Bro, you were just saying this was just about saying pastors this, yes. in many white churches essentially completely erasing the January 6th, 2021 attempted insurrection from their church members' minds. Like they don't talk like in epistemology of ignorance.
0: So yeah. literally you can talk about society and never mention January 6th, which was a fundamental moment where the fabric of American society was threatened and where the vice president of the United States was, they were trying to find him to hang him publicly and you can literally never mention it. And I've, and listen, I I've spent time in white church of recent. Okay. (laughs) So I am not blowing smoke. I'm telling you, you can be in every service and be like, wow, this is weird. It's never came up. Mm -hmm. The fact that our democracy almost ended on a particular
2: day in the modern era is not a matter of uh, theological analysis. So, one more thing on the present book, then we want to get into a little bit of your bio. I just love this term, miracle motif. Yes. So, you explain in the book. It's a
0: classic, man. The
2: miracle motif is the theologically rooted idea that as more individuals become Christians, social and personal problems will be solved automatically. Yeah. The miracle motif. Tell us about yeah. that. I'm, and I'm, I'm kind of smiling because <laughs>
1: in the latest research that was still there. Still there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Stag- so you solve any problem, any, any ill in the world by having people convert to Christianity. And then you know, I, you can get it on one level, right? We want people to follow Christ, but it is this idea then automatically you're perfect. Whatever vice you have, whatever prejudice you have, it's all gone. And um, I mean, reality would say it's not not what happens.
0: You know, when you look at the current multi-ethnic church and how multi-ethnic churches really started to explode and, you know, for a number of different structural, like social reasons and cultural reasons— we look at how they've begun to explode and they're common in church vernacular. And you have those multi-ethnic mega churches and multicultural mega churches. You know, it's, it's kind of a weird question to say, how do you view these churches? But what are some, what are some questions that fire in your mind about the mo mul- the current state of multi ethnic churches because we could talk about white churches black churches yeah, yeah, yeah. but I'm just curious you know on the current state of multi ethnic churches yeah. what what is what are some of the questions and what are some of the the observations that you've had because we are dealing with a a, a Trump presidency and and George Floyd and 2020 and, and racial justice uprising and Breonna Taylor and what are you seeing that multi ethnic church pastors whether white or black do and consider with what is present that somehow in the course of discipleship and sermons and small groups never gets addressed and never gets talked about.
1: Yeah. And we're just for listeners, we're sitting in the city with the the largest multi-ethnic, multi-racial yes. church in the country, over 50,000 people, <clears throat> Lakewood Church, Joel Osteen Pester. There yes. it is. Um Okay, so I have spent – so after Divided by Faith came out, my very next project was to understand multiracial churches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I have spent at least 20 years following them. Back then, the reason that I made that my next project is when I was interviewing people for Divided by Faith, the few white Christians that talked differently than everyone else I interviewed were going to multiracial churches. Mm -hmm. But back then, it meant pretty much they were going to – Primarily black churches with black pastors, and mm. so when we did the first survey in nineteen ninety eight, only about within evangelicalism, only about four and a half, maybe five percent of the congregations would have been multiracial, and that means, and it's it's not a real high bar. It means that uh, at least twenty percent of people are a different yeah. group, right? <laughs> yeah. So then, when we did our latest one a couple of years ago, it was almost a twenty percent, and in fact, mm. for evangelicals, it's like twenty one percent or something. So it's a massive growth in 20 years even though it's still the minority so but here's the problem now that it's become hip and the thing to do then we've got a whole variety of them and a lot of them are not doing it because they care about race per se they care about diversity so diversity is i'm learning a scary term right whoa come (laughs) on come on and not for maybe the reason some people have but Right. Yeah, diversity is like, it's like the end. If that's your end, then you've gotten nowhere. Um, I'm going to give an example and hopefully nobody here in the higher echelons of Houston is listening, but I would go to, uh, get invited to gatherings here in Houston of the very wealthy, the billionaires. Hmm. Okay. And they would spend a lot of time in these mansions talking about how wonderfully diverse Houston is because we had done a report that showed that Houston was the most racially diverse metropolitan area in the U.S. Mm. and had the most even balance of all the major groups and they loved that. They loved it. But the thing I always found interesting is the irony that they're having that discussion and everybody there is white
2: and they don't (laughs) notice that. right so any billionaires throwing parties i will help with <laughs> if you need any just let us know no. yes <laughs> that's right God. so <laughs> be the token for a token uh,
1: you know, know. okay right. that's my illustration of why why diversity is it doesn't get you very far we you know you wanting uh where i work now uh, the kinder institute they have a a vision of inclusive prosperity which i love that oh. term so it's good Fine, we can define prosperity however we want, but it's gotta be inclusive. Diversity itself isn't inclusive. it's just lots of different people
0: and you know that's that's personally poignant because in nineteen ninety eight the church where my father was pastoring which he founded was a multi ethnic church and it was a very rare multi ethnic mega church that was led by a black man mm. It was extremely rare, and so we had you know sixty percent black forty percent white, you know in the south deep south you know and what what struck me was his goal though and he's talked about this very openly with me and others is his goal was just diversity mm-hmm. what he called back then multiculturalism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he was like if we just get together it's going to look like heaven and you know we're we're counteracting racism and and what strikes me is some of the people who were leaders and elders in the church who were white uh, years later, after having spent fifteen or so years at our church, and they had transitioned to other churches for different reasons, and some moved out of the city. Years later, began to unfriend, unfollow, block me because I said something about Mike Brown, mm. and it was it was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you spent all this time, yeah. Yep listening to black people, being around in small groups of black people, black christians, worshiping, saying you love it. It's so diverse. It didn't change any of your heart. Come on, bro. Mm-hmm. When it comes to and then me, you see me grow up. You've been a, you've been around me. We talked recently and then all of a sudden blocked. Just I don't want to hear this. Yeah. You you're not and it's like, "Wow, so just getting us in the same room doesn't change anything." No. And that's both in our historical, sociological research, but there's also our lived experience as well. I've got so many questions. Like, I mean, just based off that, right? Is there
2: any sort of sociological explanation or theory you can offer as to, all right, I'm going to just say it like this, uh, the Republican captivity of the white evangelical mind or the Hmm. conservative captivity of the white evangelical, are there any sort of sociological principles that would help us understand something like the religious right or this adherence to what has been called conservatism socially and politically. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, and that will get into the new book. So, I don't know if you want to do that now or wait, but uh, I can address that. Do it now. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, this new book called The Religion of Whiteness makes this argument that – Race in the U.S. has become religionized. So we know that we have religion and it has become racialized, right? We're divided. We have different, uh, churches that we go to, different practices. But I'm saying with my co-author that it's the opposite is also true. And if we can grasp that, that race has reached cosmic transcendent status, then we understand that it must be defended. It must be preserved. And that is what the book is about, like the lengths that people are going to. And where is it practiced most intensely? It It is a massive sect <laughs> within white Christianity. In fact, according to our empirical estimates over and over and over, it's two-thirds of all practicing white Christians hold tightly. In fact, so tightly that when we tra- created experiments where they had to choose between kind of historical biblical Christianity and this religion of whiteness, they chose the religion of whiteness. Two-thirds. There. <laughs> wow. measure after measure after measure different way that we, we approach it many different ways it's the number we found over and that's over
2: that's heavy mm-hmm. race has been religionized race has been religionized yep.
1: so the wow. alignment with with um, republicanism in, in this case because it yes it does many other things but it also helps to
2: preserve that that because historically, there's always been a party of white supremacy. There's always yeah. been a party that yeah. has trafficked in let's maintain and perpetuate a racialized hierarchy and discipline, and that just so happens to have an R and an elephant associated with it. It right. Doesn't really matter. Yeah, and in the past, it it didn't right? exactly it didn't have a different party with it. So, but you're saying in the in the religionization of race, there is a political party which is ultimately about power. That is, baptizing and sanctifying that religion. Wow. Yeah, Jesus.
1: Yeah, and so we say the sacred symbol. Every religion has sacred symbols. What it worships. So, it is a white Jesus. It must be a white Jesus. It cannot be other representations. And that's why people find that very offensive if they're subscribing to this religion. If you show a black Jesus or a Hispanic Jesus, or you can't have that. So that's one symbol. The other two symbols are a merging of the cross and the flag. Right. So it becomes itself. We say one of the beliefs within this religion is Christian nationalism, so that's one of them. And then uh, a third symbol that gets worshipped, and we have all kinds of examples of, is firearms because that illustrates the power, and also like if you want to mess with this, you you know, right here on this podcast, you know, we we can take care of that if we have to. That's what it's suggesting, right? Wow! <laughs> and
2: that's one of the things that I say, like in the rebirth of the KKK in nineteen fifteen. They go up to the top of Stone Mountain, Georgia, build an altar, and they put three items on it. They put a flag, a Bible, and a sword. There it is. I mean, that, see? It's the same thing, right? And if they did it years, it'd be the same thing. Flag, Bible, but maybe an AR-15. AR-15 That's 15, right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Keeping up with technology. So, a
2: 100 years later, same thing. <laughs> Y'all see why <laughs> this is such a historic moment for us to talk to Dr. Michael Emerson. Um Real briefly, somebody once said to me when I was in my PhD program, they said, uh, all research is autobiographical. Meaning that no matter what the field, you're a scientist, you're a social scientist, you're a historian. Typically, your topic of study for a dissertation, for a book, whatever, is there's some intersection with your personal life and experiences. So, if that's true, all research is autobiographical. Can you talk a little bit about sort of your personal experiences with race and religion that would lead you into this field as a sociologist? Yeah, absolutely can.
1: So I used to, I like to say that uh, if you would have known me in my teens and 20s, uh, I was central casting white guy. so <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, just straight-up white guy. yeah, If Hollywood was casting someone, they would look for me. And so when I um, got my PhD, uh, I was young, twenty six. Got my first job, and it was uh, we had this choice to live in this little city of fifty thousand, or live in a suburb. And I was, you know, of course we're going to live in the suburb. We don't want to live among the riffraff. Uh, so there we are, living kind of our dream. I'm married. We got a young child. Another on the way. And I now this is mid-90s. I get invited to uh, something called Promise Keepers, mm. which was big back or just starting back then and then became big. But uh, it may have its own issues, but it was a transformative experience for me. So, I we drove 800 miles to it. Whoa. And um, my story is always this. It was an Acts 2 moment. So, you have speakers. They're going to speak on the seven promises. Promises are things like… There is one on race, right? Racial reconciliation, which was very controversial for this group at that time. And yes. it was their demise, according to their founder. Mm. But the other ones, you know, aren't that controversial. Be a good father, be a good husband, things like that. So they would just organize and have speakers speak on each one of those. And they had given you a booklet when you came into the big stadium. And after each speaker, write what you heard God say.
2: Mm.
1: And no matter what. So they spoke on being a good husband. And I would write, race grieves God. Race in America grieves God. The racial division, and I was like, I, I didn't write. I wasn't thinking that. That's, but that's what was the pen wrote. Mm-hmm. It was very bizarre. I didn't know what was going on. I got a clue as I because at the end they have you look over what God is saying to you, and it became very clear. And the last one was, um, you will be involved in my transformation of race in America. Whoa. Wow. It's like, whoa. Yeah, I'm living That's in…
0: Pentecostal. Yeah. Ha! Listen. <laughs> hey, my spirit is jumping. Right now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so now I say I bought… They had a book tent. I bought every book that existed on race and religion. There weren't that many all back then. of them. Yeah, all three. <laughs> and I read them all straight through. Uh, so, partly on the trip. And then when I got home, kept reading. And then as soon as I finished the last one, I finally went to sleep. It was like 72 hours straight of being up, something like Very that. Nice. And then I had a vision, um, in my sleep and these folks, I'm not Pentecostal. So I don't, these things don't normally happen to me, but it, and it was just a real clear command. You will live as a racial minority, you and your family until I tell you otherwise. Okay. So I, I'm going to preface this. We lived in the whitest metropolitan area in the United States at that time. And then keep in mind, right? I didn't want to live in the city of the whitest, uh, metropolitan. I want to live in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm like, well, that is not going to be possible here. So if that's the case, God, you're going to have to make change happen. So my wife was five months pregnant. I woke up and she wanted to know about the trip. I said, ah, you better sit down. (laughs) You're going to want to sit down for this. And then I told her what had happened. And now she's from a small farming community in central Minnesota. And she just, she listened to me. She looked at me. And then she just burst into tears. Hmm. And uh, just like, what do you mean? We This is the life we've been dreaming of. And you're saying it's all going to change? Yeah. By the way, she's the biggest cha- – she's bigger champion than me these days. She's had a dramatic transformation. But at that time, it didn't make sense. Yeah. But in short order, God did a series of miracles, a new place to live, in a new metropolitan area, a new job, new church, new schools – and that started the journey it's been what 28 years of exactly what god said to do doing that so that's the wow. story i've
2: never heard that mm that that wow that and damascus road moment
0: that's a damascus road moment.
1: yeah and and so i should say as we're going through this transformation we move we move to a god opens up doors and we end up in an african american community uh in minneapolis at that time then houston then chicago and so on but that it was like, what is going on? The world didn't make any sense all of a sudden, the things I was seeing and hearing versus what the community had grown up had said was the reality about black folk, and it just wasn't the case and different practices. and, And so I'm doing research for Divided by Faith and having this personal transformation. So, those things coalesced
2: into the book. This this scales fall from your eyes on yes. race and this epistemology of ignorance is interrupted. Yes. Yes. I, want, I think this is important for our listeners to hear because you said that that the word you got from God is that you will live as a racial minority until I tell you otherwise, which you have done. You've moved into predominantly black neighborhoods and spaces and you have children, what impact did that experience Mm. have on your children, do you think? Mm.
1: Great question. I'll tell you what, that was the biggest pushback I got from any family members. Like, how could you do this to your children or friends? Mm. I'm like, do what?
0: (laughs) Yeah, unpack that. (laughs) Build on (laughs) Right.
1: What are you assuming there? But we have four children, the uh, they've grown up, so the youngest is 24 and the oldest is 32. Wow. Three of them are married, so I can can say the impact you know long term mm-hmm. has been this. A um, couple things, and I'm going to preface this by saying, early on in this experience, I was sitting on a bus right next to John Perkins, okay. who's asking me about this, and I'm talking to him about it, and he says, "I'm going to tell you right now, a word from the Lord: God will bless your children because you are following His, My mama. his way." Mm. And I will say that we were the tightest knit family, right? They, they usually were the only white children in the neighborhood at school and church. They never got into any trouble at all. Like no drugs, no alcohol, nothing. I think because they knew they stood out. They were very close to us. Um, They made a lot of good friends. Every single one of them was adult would live no other way. They live that way now. In fact, my oldest son is a pastor here in the Houston area in the very neighborhood he grew up in and is sending his interracial child
2: to the very schools that he grew up in. So, there it is. The breaking of a generational I'm telling you, this has generational impact. We talked before about like college kids even today coming in saying, I never learned this. I never knew this. You immersed your family in this. It wasn't something you had to sit them down and say, watch this documentary or read this book. They were living it. And now they are extending it to their own families, their spouses, their children. What would you say in the entire, please take it away. But what would you say to like, from my perspective, the biggest issue that we have in fighting racism is not a how-to problem it's a want-to problem mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: and so yeah. much of it is not knowing what to do give somebody a pen and a pad for five minutes and you can come up with well you know we need to have you know uh people of color in leadership we need to reallocate this what you can come up with but we don't do it so for somebody who's hesitant maybe listens to this podcast or re- reads your book or even has a word from the Lord, but it's disruptive, it, 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 it is, it, it's costly, it's sacrificial, what would your word of encouragement be to them? Oh, if you believe God is real, then
1: do it. Do the call. I mean, yeah, we have been so blessed by God. God does not abandon you. You know, I heard you once speak, and you said, if you follow this, you will lose friends and family. And oh, did we ever. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. But you're going to gain new friends and new family, and that's going to be tight. Yeah, And that's exactly mm-hmm. the experience. The joy, I mean, when you are walking with God, it is an incredible experience. We did one time where we did not. So we were here at Houston and we were like man we're northerners we just it's hard to get adjusted to this heat and everything and we f- i basically forced my way to a job at Notre Dame and we attempted to move there totally out of God's will and it was a mess for our family it was i mean when we ke- we were driving and we got to the border of Texas and we should have taken this hint a massive storm with all these clouds came and approached and we could not get across the border in, ma, into into wow. we literally couldn't we had to pull off because we couldn't see we couldn't go anywhere ma, we should have taken that message <laughs> but yeah so we only did that for a year we're Like, okay we're out of god's will go back and then boom you can feel the blessing again god mm. will take
2: care of you Mm. Well, I'm sad the example was Notre Dame, but it's yeah. more
0: about. Oh, I <laughs> love Notre God, Dame. But uh, on brands. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I will say, I, I think, you know, the spirit is definitely at work. You may not be a Pentecostal, but the spirit is definitely at work you. in your life. I think my only question, I think we can probably close with this is, you know, you've, Jamar has mentioned at the beginning your encouragement to him in the midst of this very difficult road to lead the way. And I think we both every time we get together, I think there's a collective exhale Hmm. because we're so deep in the fight and we're so deep in the work in separate cities and separate states. And we get together, there's a, a a breathing, a refreshing, and we're doing work. But at the same time, it's like, okay, I can breathe because someone understands exactly what I'm walking through, when I'm walking through it. And we can share our scars. And that's what we do typically first night. We just share all the the wounds mm. and the pains and the scars and try to encourage one, one another to keep going. This road is hard not just for us. I haven't met anybody who's made um, a choice, specifically a black Christian who's made a choice that has not encountered a hard road and a road of that really leads him to the valley of the shadow of death and leads him to the brink of I'll step off the cliff or I'll come back and I'll get back in the fight. What would you say as a matter of encouragement? Jamar said you talked about that brink. I know there's probably people listening on the brink. Mm-hmm. What would you say to the people who are on that brink and on that path and feel as though there's just, I can't do it anymore?
1: Yep. First of all, what you say is real. I mean, anybody engaged in this work, you're doing spiritual battle and so you will be attacked. Um, that will try to come after your family, will try to get you into vices and get you astray, will, especially here will use fellow Christians and the people closest to you to hurt you. Mm. That's the reality. That's the truth. So I would say if you're in in that and you're experiencing that, the more you experience that, the more you know you're on track. When The devil is bothering with you. There's a reason. Stay with God. Stay with God. I'm going to tell you when you get to the end, (laughs) you know how it says – well done, my good and faithful servant. Yeah. I mean it's gonna be on steroids. Wow.
2: Wow. This is um this is a sacred moment. Hmm. And what you've done is is you've you've gifted us with not only knowledge but wisdom. Um, truth be told, you've ministered to us. What you've been doing since the moment I met you. And now I'm so glad. Tyler gets to experience it here as we're recording in person. Our listeners get to experience it. And brother, we just bless you. We just bless your ministry. Thank you. Likewise. We are thankful to you and to God for your obedience to the call and for your longevity in this. And for your disciple making, because others from sociologists to simply people who've read your book have been um, encouraged to follow the path that you followed. So we don't, often get our flowers when we most need them and in a timely manner, but hear it from us on yes. past the Mic. Uh, we honor you, um, your service, your obedience, your faith, and it's making an impact. And when God promised that you would be part of changing, yes, we are living with this. Mm. We're living
0: it. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Thank That's, you, Dr. Tennyson. It's an honor. And I want to say this. It you don't know how much you bless me that you're in the fight right Mm. i'm i'm not doing it alone no but what's awesome is when it's a younger generation Mm. and then you both and pastor mike congratulations on 10 years that's so amazing thank Thank you you. (laughs) yes you're influencing generations younger than yourself i know you are because i hear people talking about pastor mike and you know you giving them the knowledge and the want to to be involved so i'm so
2: grateful It's a family. It's a family. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you, Dr.
1: Emerson. Thank you.